Welcome to Pathways to Wisdom, a show about journey and legacy, contribution, and the meaning of life. We all have interesting stories about the paths we have chosen, the people we have touched, and the wisdom that comes with living life to the fullest. We have a choice each day to live into our greatness, and our greatness is informed by what we do, how and who we love, what we believe about ourselves and others. Now here's the host of Pathways to Wisdom, Deborah Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to Pathways to Wisdom. I am so happy to be with my guest today. I mean, I'm very excited about it. Her name is Seta Terzian and she was born in Heliopolis, a suburb of Cairo, to a journalist father and a stay-at-home mother. She earned a bachelor's in social sciences from the American University in Cairo before eventually moving to the United States in 1948. She worked in the special education department of the Westwood, Massachusetts Public Schools before retiring in 1987. She wrote and published a book called Two Girls from Heliopolis, and she is here to tell us about her journey, her thoughts on legacy, and something, well, quite a few somethings, I'm sure, about the book. Welcome to Pathways to Wisdom, Setha. Hi, Deborah. I'm glad to be on this show. <laughs> well, thank what you for I being with me. My book? Yeah. Well, let's start with why did you write it? And I think that will sort of inform the entire discussion because, as you know, this show is about legacy. It's about journey. Uh, frankly, it's also about serenity. So I don't know if we'll get into, into anything about serenity but I bet we will. But tell me about journey and legacy as it relates to your book. Well, uh, when I was young, and most people are young, we're busy and we're working and bringing up children, and you don't really think too much about legacy. But then when you get older, you start, I did anyway, I started thinking that... Um, I'm, uh, of course, my legacy would be my children, my grandchildren. But besides that, I wanted to leave something behind that when people go on, on the Internet, they will see my book, hopefully, and think about my journey from Heliopolis to the United States. So tell me about that. What um, now, now, I I almost hate to say this because most times we don't talk about the age uh, we are. <laughs> We're not supposed to as women. I mean, that was a yeah. rule a long time ago. Yes. But you are blessed to be 89 years old plus plus plus, right? You're about to have your 90th birthday in September. Exactly. And you have had a wonderful life, and it started in a place that is far, far away from where we are now. So let's go back. Let's go back and talk about that, and and also talk a little bit about some of your concerns about Egypt right now, because I know that things are certainly different now uh, in Egypt than they were when you were there as a girl. Exactly. I was born, as you said, in Heliopolis, which is a suburb of Cairo, but which was at that time, I'm talking about 1923 when I was born, 
until, let's say, the Second World War, it was a beautiful little town with white apartment buildings and villas decorated and very safe. As a child, I remember I used to ride my tricycle all around the neighborhood, and nobody worried that uh, I was going to be kidnapped or something was going to happen to me. So uh, my memories of Heliopolis is very, very nice. Then uh, I went to the high school, English Mission College, and then the American University in Cairo. Today, when you watch TV, you see all those demonstrations. They call it Tahrir Square. That used to be called Ismailia Square at my time. And I remember walking along that square, quiet, nobody around, a few people, with my friends sometimes, and I was very eager to go to the university and learn and have a good time with my friends. So I am worried about Egypt because my life there was quite happy, and the people are very, very nice, very friendly and helpful. All I can say is I hope I hope that things will be solved somehow and the people, the Egyptians, will be happy with what they have as their government. So that's all I so can say I. about yeah, politics. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I I I lived in the Middle East uh, as a child, and I I watch the unrest and the turmoil over there sometimes, and I think, my goodness, I I can't even go back and visit because I would be so afraid. And yet, I'd like to because that's where my childhood was, you know. So I'd like to go back to uh, I'd like to go back to Turkey, and I know Turkey's you know, have some things going on there as well, and I'd love, yes, frankly, yes. to go back to Iran. I started first grade in Iran, and I can't go back there. You know, it's kind of an odd feeling. Very strange. Yes, very strange yes. that uh, the whole Middle East is uh, how she in an uproar, or they're all demonstrating, and nobody seems to be too happy over there. I feel right. badly about that, but... Uh, I really can't do anything from Boston except <laughs> and I can't them. do anything I can't do anything from my own Heliopolis because as you know uh the place where I live Sun City Arizona uh Sun City is Heliopolis that's what Heli- or Heliopolis means Sun City right in Greek yes so exactly, I think that's Greek. funny that so you and I are actually I, yeah yes when I <laughs> yes, heard you and that, I, are, I It was a great feeling that you live in Sun City and I lived in Heliopolis. I know. I think it's funny. Um, So let's go back to your story uh, that that you wrote. And it is basically, wouldn't you say, a coming-of-age story? Exactly. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Two girls born in Heliopolis, how they grow up, how they go to school, and each girl goes a different way, really, but then they meet again. That's the story of Eugenie and Alicia. But they always, even though they live apart for a while, 
Alicia lives in Paris, and Eugenie lives in uh, New York, but their friendship is always very warm and very friendly. So, And I know that your life story is woven through this book, and probably it's fair to say that only you know which parts are your story and which parts are things that are somebody else. So I think it's very interesting, uh, an interesting way to write your um, autobiography. Well, what happened when uh, I finally, when I was young and working, I didn't think about writing a book. But then uh, my husband passed away and I was uh, lonely, let's say, and I needed something to do. I had retired from my job so I sat down uh, I had an old typewriter manual mind you and uh, I started typing and uh, all I wanted to say is to leave something for my children to where I was born where I was educated this and the other thing but then it became uh, kind of boring even to me so and in the meantime, my son-in-law had an old Apple computer. He gave it to me, and I started learning how to use the computer, which makes it much easier to type. And as I went along my life, I fantasized a little bit. But most of the uh, the political part and the, my uh, travels, those are real. Those are true. Uh, and the uh, conditions during uh, the North African campaign in the 19, what is it, 44 or around there, that's real. And the, my work, my education is real, and my university is real, and my boss <laughs> that I really liked is real. But some of the, let's say, what shall we say, romance is a mm-hmm. little bit fantasized. <laughs> <laughs> the names have been changed. To, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, the names have been changed to protect the innocent or guilty or guilty pleasures or whatever, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I like that. So, well, maybe you know, there's it lots was of a reasons. Wishful, yeah. <laughs> There are lots of reasons to write an uh, autobiographical piece. Um, Sometimes it's to leave a message to future generations, like I think you you kind of started out on that that foot. Maybe pass on your heritage, you know, so people understand more about where you came from. Um, Yes. Yes, even sometimes to process our own experiences, um, put them into context so that, as we put it down on paper, we start to really um, realize how we feel about things, how we feel about our lives. So I think it's kind of a a, a great exercise to do it. Um, and like you say, you didn't start out to write a novel, but I like the way it turned out. Yes, it, uh, I didn't start like a novel, as you say. I started just writing facts, but then I... I enjoyed really writing the fantasies that I have, 
but I wanted some sort of, I use the word immortality, but uh, most of the writers, past writers, old writers, they become immortal because of their work. Not that my book is that kind, that well done or that famous, but still, it gives my life a little bit of immortality. And as you get older, you think more and more about what did I leave behind besides my children and my family and my grandchildren. So that's why I started writing. Well, I appreciate that a lot. And I I actually Googled uh, why write an autobiography. I keep saying autobiographical instead of just autobiography. I can't. I can't say that word. Autobiography. My goodness, it just won't come out. Yes. Um, why? Why write an autobiography? See, I did it again. An autobiography. I'm going to lose that word in a minute. Or a memoir. And one of the things that I found is exactly what you just said. It is to leave a small measure of immortality. That's exactly why it's done. So it's interesting that some people. Um, would would never think to do that. You know, they don't feel like their life was either interesting enough or worthy or whatever. But I yes, believe yes. everyone, everyone, um, from the day they start their first breath until the day they take their last breath, should feel good enough about themselves to leave a small measure of immortality in some way because they do it anyway. You know how they've been with people you know, how they're remembered by their friends and family and so forth. But why not put it on paper? That's right. That's right. They say that every uh, person has a book in inside them, and they should. They should write it. Everybody must have feelings and uh, had some sort of adventure in their life. And uh, instead of just sitting and doing nothing, they should sit down and uh, write about it. Well, that's right. anyway, that's why I wrote about it. People, uh, some my friends sometimes laugh when I say immortality, but I think it's a good thing to do. Well, let's put it this way. I know more about you in some fashion by having had conversations with you on two different radio shows and reading your book than most people will find out about anyone. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, you've shared with you've shared with me and the world and and your family and so forth um, in a way that's very interesting and fun and kind of lets us in a little bit and we get to you know kind of peel back the onions and say, okay, now how much of that is is Seta and how much of that is somebody else? It's very. Yes. I think it's a very cool thing to do. I do. I like it. <laughs> cool. Now, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Did you have well. to do any research? Did you have to do any research, even though this is oh, stuff yes, that you... Oh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, the um, the political, uh, the beginning, the political part about Egypt and the North African campaign and all that, I had to do it. Because when you're uh, talking uh, to friends, it's fine if you mix up the dates and the names and all. But when you're writing on paper... It has to be correct. So I did do a lot of research. And uh, so the political, 
part about the king, King Farouk, and and uh, World War Two and Churchill and my job at the Office of War Information and how the um, North African campaigns started and how they came almost uh, Italians, the, almost to Alexand- 80 miles from Alexandria. And uh, I don't know whether I mentioned this before, but uh, Benito Mussolini was a very uh, show-offish kind of a leader, and she was hoping he was hoping that he would enter Alexandria on a white horse. That oh. was the that was the talk in uh, Cairo, anyway. And there were a lot of Italians at that time in Cairo and Alexandria, and they were all I heard at the time they were sewing Italian flags. <laughs> So that when Mussolini marched in, they would be showing all the Italian flags. But of course, it never happened because Churchill took over and uh, everything changed. So I had to make right. a, I had to read a lot, and also about my trips to Europe, like uh, Paris and Rome and Greece and. Uh, Mallorca, Spain. I had visited. I've visited them. Those are real, but certain things you have to research, and so that you're telling the right story about each visit, about each island. So yes, I did do a lot of work. Well, even um, if you had been inclined to mention Tahrir Square in 1940, that would have been a mistake in the book because it's, it wasn't called Tahrir Square at that time. Right? Yeah, exactly. So there's that kind of thing, too. Right, there's that kind of thing, too, that you have to watch when you're writing a period piece or a, uh, a piece of history like that. Exactly. Well, right. I really didn't know where Tahrir Square was, really. They were talking <laughs> about it, so I had never heard. So I had to research and find out where Tahrir Square was. So I found out that it was Ismailia Square that I was walking through and not Tahrir Square. Right. So everything you have to research. Right. Well, your book is available, I know, on Amazon um, as a paperback book and as a Kindle. And also you have a, a website called Two Girls from Heliopolis where a person could actually click on your book cover and go right to the Amazon page and they could buy the book. I know that. Yes. And um, I know that you have uh, done book signings and things like that uh, in in Massachusetts, where you live. So what's yes. the most exciting thing about being a published author? Well, uh exciting thing is I actually was my book signing event. <laughs> because we we sent uh, a lot of invitations out, and I didn't know whether anybody was going to uh, come to the events in Needham. So my daughter worked uh, very hard, and we sent about, I think, 80, uh, 80 invitations. And luckily, or surprisingly, 75 showed up. <laughs> and wow. I was there. 
Yes, 75 showed up, and they all bought books. And I was busy signing and signing, and I felt like like a great author, you know. (laughs) I don't know. But uh, anyway, that was kind of exciting for me. It's very exciting. Well, you know that I don't remember now what the number is, but let's say... 95% or 85% of the population, like you said, has a book in them and and wants to write a book, and only 1% or 2% will. Yes, yes. That's unfortunate. Well, it it makes what you've done special, and it makes it something that other people could also do if they knew that um, that you've done it and you started it when you were in your 80s, for goodness sakes. Yes. Right? (laughs) <laughs> yes. So what would your advice be if somebody is, is noodling around and they're going, I just don't know if I have time or I don't know what it's going to take, blah, blah, blah. You know, What would you suggest? Well, they have to uh, set aside an hour or two hours every day, schedule it like uh, every day, and uh, sit down and think even if you can't write uh, the first time, just write whatever comes to your mind. And then you can go back and change it. I used to walk a lot when I was in my 80s. And during that walk, I ideas came to my mind, what to write, how to do the character, how to do this, how to do that. So I started carrying a paper and pencil with me, a pad of paper. And every idea that came, I wrote it on the paper. Even when I went to sleep at night, I used to suddenly think of something. So I had a pad of paper next to my bed. I would get up Mm -hmm. and write. So that's what they they have to concentrate. And they have to decide that it's an important thing to do, to leave a legacy to their children and to the world, I guess. So uh, they have to accept that it's important to do it. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Go ahead. Well, and then the, the only problem is afterwards it's difficult to publish. That it's a kind of a complicated uh, process to edit the book. You have to find an editor who has the same feelings for the book as you have. Mm -hmm. And then you have to trust the editor that they're going to do uh, the right thing editing the book. I had a little problem at the beginning, but it turned out well because, as I to- told you before, my granddaughter started doing it, and then my my son-in-law took over. So it's a, I, I think it's a very important thing for everybody to write something. Even if it's not a published book, they should write a little something for their children. So I personally, my parents, I know nothing about them because they... They didn't talk. They they were quiet. I guess it's their generation. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I never asked questions. I didn't dare ask questions. And they didn't offer any. 
So I really don't know. I just know where they were born and what they did, and that's it. It's it's sad, I think. But well, thankfully, I had asked my mother. Uh, my father died when he was sixty, so I didn't I didn't have the same chance to ask him as many questions. But um, my mother was seventy eight when she died, and one of the things that we did every time we got together, as soon as I got off the airplane and was in her house um, in Arkansas and sitting across the table from her, and she would start telling me stories. I don't know how we got off on, you know, when she was 12 or when she was 16. I don't know how it happened, but I'll tell you, I heard some of the most amazing things from my mother, and then I would do the same. I would tell her stories, and it would just be exhausting, you know, because yes. I would yes. have been on an airplane for five or four or five hours. It's like, okay, I have got to go to bed. But there was a lot of storytelling, and it was some of the best time um, to be in that, that sh- space of sharing. You know, it really was. Yes, so. yes it is. It, everybody should do that. Lately, of course, they're doing it more, but on my time, uh, I don't know, we didn't dare ask questions of our parents. But hopefully now the mo- uh, new generation with the Internet, this computer, uh, they can keep in touch even if they don't live close enough. They can keep in touch and keep the uh, learn more about their parents because I'm yes. sure every parent has sacrificed a lot to bring up their children. So they should interview them somehow. I agree with you. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. um, <laughs> um, so I I think the only other thing that I was going to say, kind of. On the, um, you were talking a minute ago about the legacy and and the things that we don't want to. Um, let me put it a different way. If we don't tell certain stories, things will be lost. In other words, exactly. you may know things that that nobody else knows about that point in history when you were standing in front of the teletype and seeing amazing teletypes come in about things that everybody else just reads in history books. Right, so that's why it was important, I think, for you to share that in your book. That's right. I still uh, remember the tele teletype. There was no uh, computers uh, at that time. So uh, when I worked in the Office of War Information, the teletype machine was ticking on all the time. And we used to get news from uh, Reuters and UP and all those news agencies. And we would translate them and send them to the uh, local uh, Egyptian papers, the French papers, and uh, Stars and Stripes. That was the army newspaper. So uh, I I think I have lived a time when people don't seem to talk too much about and the and the war and its effect on uh, Heliopolis when a couple of times they bombed Heliopolis. I don't know why, but they did. Uh, so it's it's interesting, I hope, for people to read my book. Well, I can tell you that it is. I can tell you that I recommend the book highly. And yes. again, I want to say, I will say for you, that people can get it at your website, which is twogirlsfromheliopolis.com. 
and Heliopolis is spelled H-E-L-I-O-P-O-L-I-S. Or they can go right to Amazon and put in the search on books, Two Girls from Heliopolis, or your name, Seta Terzian, and find the books. So I would say everybody out there listening, go and do that right this minute. (laughs) (laughs) Right this minute. Right this minute. (laughs) That would be great, yes. It would be, it would be. Well, do you have any any parting thoughts as far as um, I think we well, kind of all covered? I can, all I can say is that it's a different book, and it's a, for a, a country that uh, is in turmoil right now, and people should be interested in what it used to be. What a beautiful yes. and uh, quiet, uh, serene country, and. Uh, a lot of people, had, even at that time, used to call it uh, Paris on the Nile here. But uh, unfortunately, things are different now. And That's let's right. hope that people will read and be encouraged by it. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest today and shining a light on that part of the world and for telling your story. And I appreciate you very much. Um, thank you so much again for being with me. And uh, again, everyone, please do buy the book, read it, and write your own book. That would be my yes, recommendation exactly. for everyone yes, out there. Yes. Right. All right. Well, that's it for today. This is Pathways to Wisdom. I am Deborah Brown, and thank you so much, Seta, for being with me again. I appreciate you very much. And happy birthday when it gets here. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Okay. All right. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Pathways to Wisdom is a production of Boomer and the Babe Incorporated. You can find out more about Boomer and the Babe Incorporated by visiting our website at boomerandthebabe.com. 